0: You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Leary. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Welcome along, everybody, to another edition of The Vet Chat. Today our guest is Trish McIntosh. Trish will be probably known to a few of you, perhaps from her time on the DCV committee, where I first got to know Trish, I guess. How many years? It would be about five years or so we were on the committee together, Trish.
1: Yeah, Something that's like about that. right. I think I was on there for, you joined a little after I'd started, but that's about right.
0: More to the point, Trish is a practitioner in Culverden at uh, North Canterbury Vets and, well, more than a practitioner, you're a part owner, aren't you, in North Canterbury Vets at Culverden and, uh, well, a very experienced practitioner, shall we say, 30-odd years or so of time in practice, but a really a good sort of a vet career. We were just talking about it earlier, time in a nice, small, mixed practice to start off up in, what do you say, a potakee, and then the, the OE for a few years and, and brought back a souvenir of a, of a husband from your OE. A Kiwi? Um, a Kiwi, yes. He was Kiwi. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, I, I brought back an American See? souvenir, so I outsourced the genetics. Mm. Um, but, yeah, and then came back and set up shop in, in, in North Canterbury in and where you've been for all that, the rest of that time. But, and I guess you've had, well, we'll, we'll get into it a bit, but the career that's progressed and and gone in different directions with a, with a really good broad base that's then got into some quite cool stuff like around consultancy over time and partly also because you've got your own farm that's probably helped a little bit quite a what 1400 cows or so with Rob in North Canterbury so yeah I guess that's a nice little bit of background to where, where Trish sort of fits in here. The idea today was to talk a bit about that whole I guess because you've got a career that's kind of gone from that broad base and got into things like consultancy and you're seeing all the cool things that consultancy can do now it's sort of talking about how as vets we can do this and how we can create something that really is a bit more meaningful for us as part of the profession would that be sort of fair to say Trish?
1: Absolutely so in the outset here I'm going to sort of say that this is my disclaimer that (laughs) I am far from super knowledgeable no more so than any of our other great vets that are out there doing stuff, and and I think you and I both sort of debated the title of this, and I think the word technology is somewhere in there, which is just hilarious if you spoke to my colleagues here, because I'm on the closer side to 60 than 50, and so technology kind of is a bit hairy. I can do the basics with Excel, but let's not get too far away on that.
0: Well, I can sympathise. I mean, the two of us trying to figure out how to work the podcast app probably would have been a bit of a warning sign. <laughs> yeah. We're about 15 minutes in before we've actually managed to get this going. Yeah, at least we're managing to get there now. But yeah, so, and there's a point. I mean, you don't have to be an absolute sort of technology whiz to be able to do these types of things. So um, Especially if you've got, got
1: young ones in the clinic, they're even better. Or even my kids, yeah. that's been quite handy. So I think how we... St- how we started on this sort of little discussion was that we were going to talk about on-farm technologies, how a vet, you can get involved with this, and another disclaimer is, I, I think sometimes in our profession when we throw the word consultancy, I think some of perhaps the younger ones or the ones that are less experienced, they just put that aside in a, a too hard basket because it just sounds too overwhelming. I would almost say, use the word maybe even an advisory role, because it's almost the same thing. Yeah, it just means that they can tackle some areas without having to be the, you know, the big, full-rounded consultant. They can do advisory work around other health or calf management or whatever. I sort of felt that in our early careers, we start off and, you know, you come out of vet school and you are given a, a good broad-base uh, on clinical care, you know, and individual animal treatments and stuff, and that—that that I think you've really got to get nailed and under your belt in those first couple of years, so that Excellent. you you can do those with farm and get farmer buy-in and trust when he knows that you can do those basic things. But if you're wanting to get on and starting to use some of his data, for instance, or start to advise him on certain things, then. After that individual animal care, you've really got to start to understand, to a degree, how a standard dairy farm business functions and the management of it. And this doesn't have to be complicated. I'm talking broad brush here, really.
0: Yeah, and it's not. A lot of that is stuff that is hard to teach at vet school. You know, it's it's stuff that you just you're just going to have to pick up as you go along and sort of osmosis you just absorb a lot of it and don't even realize that you've learned it a lot of the time do you?
1: No exactly so when you're there doing the LDA surgery or when you're there seeing those five sick cows that's the time to develop that rapport and ask those questions and you know even make an effort to sort of say, well, I'll come out to the paddock with you and have a look at those colostrum cows, you know, rather than just do the job and walk away. Get, get that rapport going, start to see what they're doing on a daily basis and, and then understand their systems and their terminologies and exactly what they're doing.
0: For you, was that something that kind of happened by accident or would you say that you always had this aim that you wanted to be doing something along the consultancy slash advisory side of things? Yeah, no,
1: good question. I think I I started to get frustrated a wee bit that I was just going out there, uh, doing the individual job, whatever, whether that might have been, as we were saying the other day, you know, going to see those metritis cows or see those retained membranes, doing the job, and then maybe even a little bit of off-the-cuff advice, and then driving away, but not really feeling like I had really sorted the issue for them or that it wasn't going to repeat itself again next year so that's how it started for me I just wanted to make sure that I was making a difference for them I wasn't just uh, doing a technical job getting it done and walking away
0: yeah and and you're right I mean that's that whole sort of as you get more and more experienced and you you start to kind of understand a bit more I think that the small little thing that you're doing is part of a massive big picture and there's there's like a bunch of little dominoes sort of falling in different places. I mean, you know, you talk about doing that LDA surgery. I mean, you can easily just stand there, do the LDA surgery and drive home again, or, or you can actually sort of go, well, why would there be an LDA here? You know, what's going on behind the scenes? What can we do to actually stop this? Why is this the third one that I've seen in the last two weeks? That type of thing. So that's when you start to sort of make a bit of progress, I suppose, with these things, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and as I've sort of said to you before, there's absolutely, i have to own up to this, a degree of my personal arrogance here that I just <laughs> really want to make sure that they think that the vet is their best and first line person to contact around anything involving animal health and welfare and productivity on farm and if we can't mm. as a profession hold our hand up and take that space then someone else will so mm. I am owning up to wanting to make sure that they always <laughs> ring us rather than someone else.
0: Yeah that's a good point I think we all know there's the odd farmer out there that doesn't see the vet as being the first port of call for those things so we, we've got to be careful that it doesn't become the norm that we do find ways that we actually, you know, we've got to make ourselves relevant. I mean, as the industry sort of changes, but, you know, you can't just step in and straight away go come out of vet school and just walk onto a farm where you've never been before and and immediately start doing that stuff. So, yeah, that's that's the challenge too, isn't
1: it? Yeah, that's right, but that's why I I sort of feel in those early days, just take every opportunity you can and be kind of relatively humble about it and just say, hey, look, Barry, I'm not sure what you're meaning by feeding such and such to your colostrums, can you go and show me what you're doing with them? And so just kind of get yourself in amongst it. And like I say, be a bit humble and own up that you need to know more. And then on that, follow up. Always follow up. Say, well, I'm not sure why that's happening. Let me chase that along. Let me find out why that could be happening.
0: Mm, Yeah, I think following up's really important Uh, and doing what you say you're going to do is is a part of that too. And, And then like building a mutual sort of trust and respect with your farmer.
1: I guess the other thing we were sort of talking earlier too was that the last 30 years for me have been interesting and they've been forever evolving, you know. So did my mixed vetting and did my small animal stuff and now it's sort of dairy. And I can't help but see that the next 10, 20, 30 years are going to be even more specialising in your species. And now that we've got some of this on-farm measuring of animal health parameters they're going to become even more important. But I want us to grab this with open arms as a veterinary profession and really, really run with it. And to do it well is how we should be aiming to do it. So do it really, really well. So not only are we just going to be tick-boxing for these farmers, because that's not what it's about. We should be there going through their mastitis numbers or talking to them about their cow mortality numbers and setting up plans, setting up advisory protocols on farm, all all that sort of thing to to run with it. And they've handing us one of the more exciting things, I think, for me as a dairy clinician in the last 10, 20
0: years. I mean, I can hear the excitement in what you're saying, and, and I think that's what kind of gets me interested in this. And, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not in practice anymore, so I'm just kind of watching this a bit from afar. But I think what I can hear from what you're saying there is that this makes your job more rewarding, this type of stuff where you're actually in contact with the farmer and being able to sort of have these conversations and feel like you're making a difference, not just to their payout, I mean you know, there's obviously a heck of a lot more to it than just the extra few cents that they're going to get, but you're potentially actually making a genuine difference on the farm if you're doing this type of stuff.
1: I really want to prove that both the dairy farming sector in New Zealand and dairy veterinarians can have a really sustainable, really good animal health story to tell. And our top quartile of dairy farmers are already doing it. And not only will they, by ticking the Fonterra Cooperative Difference and getting the 10 cents, so that's all very good, but I actually think even over and above that, their productivity and their performance of their herd will improve. So they'll get a double whammy, is my theory. Now, the next group I really want to get involved in this is kind of like the middle tier, if you want to call it that. And a lot of them are partially there, but need to get a bit further. But also sometimes, and we're humans, What is what it is, is you don't know what you don't know. And so sometimes I think if we can at least start the conversation by saying, okay, let's look at some of these cow mortality numbers. I'm just picking out some of the variables that are on the or the measurables that are on the Fonterra Cooperative Difference, and one of them is, you know, cow mortality. So let's pick out this one. Now, where are these losses happening? Prior to this, we wouldn't have often had that entry into their farm business to ask them that. You you know, we would have an RVM consultation, and we might go through some some drug sales, we might uh, talk about mastitis, talk about lameness, some other bits and pieces, and that would be it. But now it's even getting more detailed. And so it's allowing us to get in there. And as I said five, ten minutes ago, it's just exciting because I really feel we can make a difference and really put our profession even further up the food chain. But
0: One of the other interesting things, I suppose, about talking to you and this, Trish, and I'm going to have to probably try and be diplomatic in how I put this, but as a North Canterbury practitioner, you're dealing with the largest average herd size in the country, over over 800 cows per herd, and I'm sure those in, in Canterbury know how good the farmers in North Canterbury actually are, but as a North Islander, and here's my attempt at diplomacy, which is probably going to fail miserably, but, but as a North Islander, there's almost um, a look at these large herds and go, oh, it's, it's almost factory farming, it's big herds, it's like, you know, lots of uh, the individual cows, it's just a number, and, you know, talking to you, there really couldn't be further from the truth, I mean, actually, it, and those that sort of know their way around the, the numbers in the dairy industry probably know that not only are they the largest herd sizes, but on a per cow basis they have the largest individual production Yeah, in yeah. the North Canterbury region in the country. So there must be more to it. But, but the fact that you can do this with big herds, I mean, those, those opportunities are there not just with the owner-operator guys, obviously, you're getting that with corporate herds, you're getting it with all types of different herds.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I, I like to sort of say to people, well, the proof is in the pudding. Like one of our measurables for our district, f- for our client base, I should say, is uh, annual bulk tank somatic cell count, and we've set. Oh goodness, I've got to be careful when I quote these figures because then people go and have look, don't they? But <laughs> somewhere will, around come 20, back and check them for you. yeah, exactly, <laughs> twenty or thirty thousand below national average. As a district, and we have a sort of end-of-season farmer awards and dinner, and look, honestly, the two main measures that we use are best 6 week in calf rate and lowest um, bulk tank somatic cell count average for the season. There's a few others, like most improved and et cetera, et cetera, but those are the two main ones, and there's no trend in herd size. One year we could have a 350-cow herd winning. The next year we could have a 1,800-cow you know, herd winning. There's absolutely no trend on size of herd. And I, I know for a fact that mortality rate in these animals, in these herds, is very low. Calf health is excellent. Utter health is excellent. Because in some respects... You can't rely on knowing that Daisy, number 62, you're not sure if she's well or not, you know. You can't just re- go out in the paddock and know those numbers. You actually have to have such rigorous systems in place that nothing can fall through the... So the systems and the farm policies uh, in some of these bigger places are, uh, you know, many instances, second to none. They're really robust, particularly for making sure that nothing falls out the system. Now, of course, there's... As always, there's going to be exceptions to the rule and um, that's where we have to keep on working. But no, herd size, in my opinion, I personally don't think enters into it. I think it's organisation, ability, management, planning. Yeah, just things like feed budgeting has to be really robust, mm. doesn't it? You can't just mm. think, oh, I think I've got enough baleage for the winter or it's just got to mm. be so accurate and so robust, Yeah a lot of our work now is staff training and whether it be spring training or lameness management and welfare or you know
0: yeah actually it's it is a good point i'm just thinking back to the few times when you know something where there has been a bit of an issue that you've needed to sort out where you, there might be some some welfare problems or you know a guy's clearly struggling and it's almost always uh, actually the smaller herds with the the one man band type operations are, are where it's more of an issue and those big herds if they they don't tend to last long if they're not sorted out do they?
1: No no that's precisely it because when it falls over it really falls over yeah so I just don't see that uh happening I mean I only did mm, just under two years up in um, key mm, too scared to say too many years ago and <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, things were a lot different then but t- precision is is pretty critical for these larger herds, yeah. Yes,
0: yeah, so that probably nicely segues into sort of what kind of systems and what kind of things that you can use, the things that are actually making a difference, um, you know, for some of these herds. How can they use some of these tools? So yeah. What's pressed your buttons in the last little while?
1: Yes, uh, individual cow sensors in the form of collars or boluses or ear tag mm. technologies that have been out in New Zealand now for. You might know more than me, Matt, I would think they've been around in Europe and Northern Hemisphere for quite some mm. time, decades probably, but kind of being almost mainstream in New Zealand, I would think perhaps in the last three-ish years, and exponentially increasing. Like, like I think last year we had two herds with cow collars, and now this year we've got five, uh, and I constantly being asked what I think of them and uh, look I think they're they're just yet another tool that we can use to even get more precise more monitored more controlled in in these herds I I wouldn't say just because they're very very good for large herds I think they're they're great I wouldn't say they wouldn't be good for a 300 cow herd I'm sure they'd be brilliant
0: what are they really doing for you? How are you using them, I guess, as a, as a vet? What are you doing with the information, I suppose, is more the point.
1: I think a real primary thing for me as a vet, so I'll put the vet hat on with the, their use, and then I can perhaps, if we get time, give you the farmer hat of, of their use. What i found is that the farmer is detecting an unwell animal. Ballpark, I feel about, 24 hours before historically you would see her showing clinical Mm. signs. Look, a classic would be even at home yesterday. Contract milker asked me to have a look at a cow. He said, look, she's just crashed on collars. Had a look at her. Now, if you saw her in the yard, she still made milk. So the milker didn't detect her. But she had a, a really high temperature... And early stage metritis, they most certainly would have seen her probably the next morning, but we got started on her treatment last night. Uh, I've just spoken to him this morning. You know, she's gallons better this morning. Is, made, is, is making milk, rumination's lifted slightly, or certainly started to lift. And so I think what it does is it allows you to get onto animals much earlier and before the intensity of clinical disease has a chance to take over, to become overwhelming in the cow. So from a vet's perspective, they're, they're marvellous. You get to see them. Last year I had a, a, an LDA, a great example. Got her early, really early, did the surgery. And look, honestly, she didn't miss a beat. She hmm. dropped in production for a couple of days and then back up again. She was about three months pregnant and days gone by she's generally got a little bit worse before you see her she's not going to die but you're going to lose some production you possibly might even lose the fetus. you just get them earlier and you just get better results.
0: yeah uh, we sort of have to remember that cattle are you know genetically they're prey animals and, and they you know they're, they're programmed to not show any external signs of disease to a predator. So, yeah, picking them up earlier, I'm just thinking if you put a collar on me and, you know, every time I spiked a bit in temperature or, you know, I was going to say... Um, my appetite went down, but my appetite never seems to go down. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you know, you might actually overdiagnose a bit. But I think with cattle, what you're probably doing is stopping the underdiagnosis rather than overdiagnosing. Or do you think there is some risk of sort of finding too many things sometimes?
1: Yes, you, and you do get a little bit of that. But we've just developed at the clinic this year a sort of triage flowchart, if you want to call it that, for these collar alert cows, and it's almost like a sort of farmer version of a clinical exam. Just start here and follow the flowchart and where you get a, a no rather than a yes in your flowchart then that's time to call us. I just think it's fantastic what it's done on the three or so herds that I specifically work with is it's just really lifted that bar on individual cow care and farmer awareness of cow health and looking at all possible areas that could be going wrong with Um, So
0: you're actually saying, well potentially you're seeing more sick cows rather than less because I I guess one of the, I don't know, um, vets could look at them almost as a threat that the farmers can do a lot of their own diagnosis and um, need the vet less but you're almost saying that they're probably almost needing the vet more now that they've got these types of things, is that right?
1: Look, at the end of the day, isn't it, it's the cow welfare that's the first thing, isn't it? Mm. So personally, I think I think these are marvellous because ultimately cow welfare is going to be better off for it. Full stop. That's where it's at. Do they call us more? Probably yes would be the answer, but not excessively so. And part of that triage flow chart was so that the farmer could start to get his head around a wee bit of why some of these cows are alerting Look in many instances it's particularly heifers, some of the social stressors that they're not used to, you know, new animals, new pecking order, goodness me they've all of a sudden got an udder and they haven't had one up until until (laughs) calving and oh hello what's this? (laughs) They, they just don't tend to cope well, you know, and so they're probably not eating as well, and so their ruminations go down, so they bring up an alert. So you take them out, the farmer will do a little bit of triage. If there's genuinely a clinical illness or a problem with her, then either, if it's an obvious one, like this metritis girl last night, then that's fine, treat her. If not, then call the vet in, you know. Or it might simply be, in many instances, what we found these last two springs is putting them out in a smaller mob like the penicillin mob or a drench of keto in many instances and a little bit of TLC and they're back into it, you know, two or three days later, yeah.
0: It's probably making your job more rewarding as a clinician though, because I know one of the frustrations for me Go back into the archives now to remember when I was a clinician a wee bit, but but you know one of the one of the problems is you get something that was actually a really interesting case, so it might be pretty more an RDA or maybe a sequel torsion something like that where you where you think this is really cool I'd like to do something, but by the time you actually see them their eyes are kind of just about meeting in the middle that's, of their skull, that's and, right. yeah, that's you know, right. and you're just like oh, we're not going to really save this girl. So actually the fact that you can see things earlier and, and actually probably get a lot more reward in your in your clinical work as well as your non clinical stuff from what you're saying. Right? Absolutely. And
1: fascinating too. I mean I'm just thinking of a really good example was a cow that I saw that had a traumatic reticular pericarditis mm. with, with actually a little bit of a hardware disease that had moved mm. into the round the pericardial sac. And in the end, of course, sadly she was, you know, euthanized and we autopsied her. But she alerted about a week before um, no, 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 probably, probably more like three days, sorry Before we euthanised her And then once we PM'd and we saw it um, yeah, All very interesting But when you went back and looked at her rumination pattern Over the previous six months She had had periods of being up and down And there's algorithms in this technology Where they have to kind of spark the algorithm enough To, to get a distress alert So she never really got, do you know what I mean? So Mm. I guess the reason I'm telling you this is when you say it's rewarding and interesting for your career because that was fascinating to look back and see that, yes, that hardware went in around about three or four months earlier. And Yes, perhaps in this instance we didn't save this cow, but it's extremely interesting.
0: So that's a lot of the individual cow stuff, I guess. What about the herd stuff? I mean, that's probably more where your consultancy side of things comes in. Where you're sort of able to get into make a difference?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, I'm um, wonderfully interesting for individual cow health and care and detection, but even more. I like, just at the moment, we're working through some some interesting data that we're showing last year, and there's a few of the guys further south in Omarama that are doing a lot of work on this where we're looking at some rumination patterns in colostrum cows and in very early lactation so like the first four to ten days of lactation and managing them so that you're getting to a good rumination level before they can get moved into the herd and, and become twice a day and that's really fascinating so in other words using the collar technology on a group basis rather than in an individual cow basis and or watching them on a group basis let's say take away from spring, let's say we might be the middle of November or something and start to see, I mean we used this last year we were really watching the rumination level and knowing where we were getting that ideal residual and that ideal intake in certain paddocks and knowing that they may drop on certain paddocks because of pasture quality or what have you to really optimise the best performance from that herd using the the overall collar data from all of those cows in that herd. But just having a large herd doesn't mean to say that they're going to be poorly managed. In fact, if anything, the management of this feeding and how the rumination of those cows in those paddocks with X residual was really powerful stuff from a farm management tool.
0: Yeah, they're not cheap, these things, are they? So I guess they The farmer's got to see the value in it, and there's all that stuff you're talking about, but there's there's what other, I mean, heat detection, I guess. Is that probably the other big one for them? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, as you can tell, we've put them on our cows at home last, so we've had a season of them. And prior to doing that, you know, I don't have a Scottish surname for any other reason. (laughs) There's gorse in my pockets. So I did do a bit of a a, a wee spreadsheet analysis or or like a sort of sensitivity analysis on basically, will I get my money back for the expenditure? And I would say after one season of using them, absolutely. And the main main area for us was around the heat detection because Mm. we want to go down the pathway of less... Bobby's. So we want to start to use more sexed semen and then follow up with more beef breeds. So sex semen, as you know, is about 5% less conception rate. And so the collars most certainly give very accurate heat detections. The plan is that we uh, used all of that heat detection data to basically inseminate the best cows with the best heats that have had mm. the most heats post-carving to really maximise that conception rate for the sex semen, and then it allows us to use more beef breeds and less bobbies. So that's a biggie. We don't have bulls. We haven't had bulls on farm for nearly eight years now. So prior to this, he and 2 uh, see was standing up there every morning for 70 days, 10 weeks, heat detecting. That is, to me, non-sustainable from a human resource perspective. So the big driver was heat detection and utilising that heat information to get the best and most accurate uh, matings and conceptions then the next one was around cow illness and being more prompt and you know having less death rates I don't know It's it, we probably saved maybe four potential dead cows uh, last year I feel because there's the collars and then finally things around the better performance, better heat detection, we used 30%, 40% less Cedars because the collars will, of course, detect a lot clearer, those more silent heats.
0: That's just that's just detecting on um, sort of acting like a pedometer, isn't it? It's like how much activity they have. Is that right?
1: Yeah, or? it's twofold. It's that they tend to muck around so they don't eat quite as much. So rumination yep. drops and they move a lot more. And so from a movement perspective, they're, they're moving more. And so, it's again, it's an algorithm that combines the two and gives you a degree of certainty that she's had a heat
0: right yeah I'm just thinking back if you put a collar on me you I know, ate less and maybe <laughs> mowed the lawns and went for a longer yeah. run I don't yeah. know if I'm more likely to get mated but yeah. yeah
1: yeah so from my spreadsheet I can safely say that it's most certainly paid for itself and I think going forward philosophically I think they're fantastic tools because I just want to make sure that nothing falls out the bottom Sick cows don't get
0: missed, yeah. So, I mean, they're not the only new technologies that have come along in the last wee while. I mean, there's other bits and pieces that you're using, I suppose. That um, And it's, it's interesting how the farmers have actually embraced quite a bit of this stuff, haven't they? If you think about other, you know, there's better use of weights, there's better mastitis detection, all those types of things too. I mean, is there other sort of things that are making a real difference to you there?
1: Well, you've sort of outlined most of them. Other than sort of financial software and stuff, but that's yeah. that's not really in this brief, really. You know, um, there's some great, some of those great tools out there, and some really good farm farm management tools like. Conscious that I can't use labels, can I? But you know, farm IQs a good one. And again, that's around farm management. There's lots around n- nutrient use, you know, and in our area, irrigation scheduling and use. So those are all sort of farmer things. They're not really specifically veterinary and mm. animal health. But mm. yeah, I think if I look back, uh, maybe ten or certainly twenty years ago, around if I wanted to make a difference on farm. We were limited by what data we could get. You know, so if Bob the farmer's got a poor repro 20 years ago, I didn't really have much I could grab other than his empty rate. And, oh gosh, yeah. even then we probably weren't even age-dating them, the pregnancies, you know. But now, goodness me, we've got Mind Awaits, and and particularly something like you know, InfoVet as a portal. That's hugely powerful to go in and see what they're doing around everything from heat detection to yeah so there's there's just gallons of that sort of stuff in there if you had to sit down with bob today and bob came in and said look i'm really worried about my overall herd reproductive performance you've got lots of tools that you can use to start to go and examine and drill down into where we could start you know whereas before it was not quite so easy wasn't it
0: yeah, yeah, it's pretty a bit frustrating at times, I suppose, because of that. But what you've talked about there, though, is that you don't have to be an intellect consultant. You don't have to be doing nutritional type stuff. You, you know, you don't even have to be a consultant or an advisor in a lot of ways to get something out of all this technology, do you? It's sort of coming back full circle a wee bit to what we started with, that that you have that understanding of the whole picture to be able to properly use all of that information that comes to you. I think you sort of used, it's, it's a slightly different example but I think you sort of um, use the example of taking blood tests you know and you get, sometimes you get a blood test back and it's just an isolated piece of information and if you don't have the context of everything else around it, it it's actually not particularly useful and it's the same with any of the technology and information isn't it?
1: Yeah, a really good example of this is that we were just recently had a herd with a, a lot of uh, retained fetal membranes mm-hmm. and far- the farmer's beside himself and wanting to know and so we took some bloods he also happened to have some nutrient feed analysis done on his feeds. Thankfully he's recording all the data so we can sort of see what animals are getting the retained membranes. And he also had a spreadsheet on where three different herds went for wintering. So already what have we got? Oh that's right, and they were pre-carved bcs as well. So we've got all that BCS data. So how good is that? That we could drill down and look at what are the other reasons why he's getting all these retained membranes in this herd, you know? And so we had all the information about what these different animals were wintered on, where they were wintered rather, what condition they came back in. We can go into Infovet and see, is there an age trend? You know, Mm. is it a wintering trend? And then we could go in and have a look at the feeds he's feeding and the volumes he's feeding and look at things like his NIFAs on his blood sampling. We wouldn't have had that. Well, Matt, did you have that sort of information when you were in practice 10 years ago? No, (laughs) No,
0: definitely not.
1: (laughs) So can you see how vital that is? So when we talked right at the outset of saying using farmer data and on-farm technologies, they're not major technologies, what I've just said, but they're Mm. just pieces of information that you can use now that you didn't probably have 10 or 20 years ago.
0: And you don't have to be a sort of absolute whiz with a spreadsheet or a tech genius to be able to use no, this stuff either. So
1: no. So to carry on with that story. Uh, We made some changes in the springer feeding. We uh, made some changes with some minerals that are going in and timing of feeds, you know. We sort of looked at uh, splitting some of the feeding of those springers so morning and evening and retained membranes. I've just been looking at some data this morning. It's definitely decreasing. Now that's Mm. rewarding and reassuring. Rather than just going out there, pulling out the membranes, using the drugs, you know, that's the bit that's rewarding that you're, you're making a change. For the better both for the farmer and and his you know it's not profitable having lots and lots of retaining. but in the same for the cow individual cow welfare yeah
0: and and that's probably quite a nice little example that yeah it almost summarizes things doesn't it that like you say it's so much more rewarding it actually makes your job as a clinician better because nobody really likes just going and pulling out a bunch of retained membranes and stuff like that. And you're making a difference And probably what you've done there through actually making a real difference for that guy is probably improve your relationship on the farm and have a better connection with the farmer, which just makes everything about your job, you know, your day-to-day job, probably a little bit better and more enjoyable as well. Yeah, I just yeah. want to
1: reiterate, though, that it doesn't have to be an old, cruddy old vet like me that, <laughs> that does that. You know, I would say I'm, I'm no cleverer than anyone else. I, I want to go back to it at the start. You know, that's start to understand systems, start to talk to farmers, make a start go and have a look at some silage stacks and see what good silage is and bad silage, you know they learn by almost, like you say osmosis, you know, you don't have to know everything either, you know, you can go into various websites, get a group of professional people behind you that you know you could call on, like the local grain and seed guy or woman in the district or know the phone number of the local LIC customer relationship manager, I think they call themselves, or even have a relationship with some of your local farm consultants that service some of these farms because you don't want to have an abyss between the two of you. You want to have a relationship that you can talk to each other and learn from each other uh, rather than having a, a them and us attitude. Um, yeah. So have, have some phone numbers and some contacts of people around that can help you.
0: Yeah they'll be helping you and you're probably helping them as well so yeah everybody's going to benefit
1: you'll be developing a relationship that that hopefully will end up helping the farm and the farmer and the herd
0: well i think um that's probably quite a nice little way to finish but um thank you very much for your time trish oh my pleasure my pleasure Listening to the Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Ely. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.